Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and how to get votes from both the 50 to 64 demographic and the negative 150 to negative 164 demographic. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. You'll be relieved to know that our 118-episode drought of interviews with people who've run for President of the United States has finally ended. Andrew Yang is someone who's generated a lot of buzz among listeners to this show because he's willing to embrace a lot of topics that most politicians won't go near, including universal basic income or what might happen when AI replaces industries wholesale. But those topics are still pretty vanilla compared to what we often talk about on here. So we set out to cover things that Andrew, as far as I know, hasn't commented on before, such as whether we should be spending more to reduce existential risks, whether it's reasonable to worry about AI tail risk scenarios, why he advocates ranked choice voting over approval voting, whether it makes sense to treat future generations as a disenfranchised group in society, his views on alternative meat, the benefits of a utopian outlook and where he ultimately hopes humanity will will be in 500 years time, what he'll do with a billion dollars, and of course the worry that he'll cause harm by running as a third party candidate with with his new political party, and plenty more topics besides. It was really fun to see the substantial areas where Andrew's views roughly align with the effective altruism and long-termism communities. And for someone involved in politics, I found him to be uh, refreshingly open and reasonably candid. If you know someone who's into Andrew, who hasn't heard of this show or our general ideas before, this could be a really good episode to share with them. All right, without further ado, I bring you Andrew Yang. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Yang. Andrew is an American politician who is currently working to establish a new US political party, which will be called the Forward Party. He is most well-known for running for president in the 2020 Democratic primaries, as well as running to become New York mayor earlier this year. Last month, while announcing his intention to launch the Forward Party, he also published his new book, Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy, which features memoirs from his presidential run, as well as his proposed solutions to the problems he identifies in US politics today. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Andrew. Rob, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So obviously, you get to talk about the challenges the US faces right now and the, and the policies you'd like to see implemented to tackle them on, the, on a regular basis. This show is maybe most unusual for making time to think about what we want in the seriously long term, like hundreds or thousands of years or, or maybe even longer in the future. And then also taking seriously how listeners might be able to help make sure that humanity stays on track to get there. Today, I thought it would be really fun to go much further than I imagine you typically get the chance to and take time to zoom out and reflect on the, on the really big picture situation in which humanity finds itself right now before then we uh, can return to some more nuts and bolts issues uh, towards the end of the conversation. Sound good? Sure thing, Rob. Congratulations on the work you all do. I'm, I'm a huge fan of people who are trying to figure out how to improve the human condition and thinking long term because right now we don't have enough of either of those things. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I, yeah, I wish that there was there's so much talk about problems. And I think that makes a lot of sense because you've got to think about what are the big problems in the world. But it's uh, also important to stay motivated, I think, by realizing that there's so many practical things we can do to, to fix those, those issues that we're worried about. But before we get to that, first off, if you could somehow return to visit Earth in 500 years time, once we'd hopefully advanced technologically and matured much more as a species, what would be close to the ideal future for humanity that you'd like to come back and see in the year 2500? Uh, Hopefully, at that point, we are living in harmony with our environment. We've managed to reverse some of the calamitous effects of carbon emissions and and climate change, and that people are living in a variety of different ways, some of which uh, I'd imagine would be kind of retro-seeming. Like, you know, I think ideally you'd have people living in communal living environments and, you know, rural areas and maybe doing some forms of the work that 
we have been doing for a long time, but not really because you need to, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but because it's actually you know, something that people enjoy, get value out of, and you can engage in creative pursuits, again, without a, a concern whether someone buys your poem <laughs> or something along those yeah. lines. So there, there, there are all of these intrinsic goals uh, that people are able to pursue and do so in a way that isn't grow, grow, grow. It, it isn't about accruing tons of resources. That would be my ideal hope for the species. Yeah. So I guess at this time, you're imagining most things are kind of in the fully automated world. So people can spend most of the time hanging out with friends and family and building relationships and focusing on the community and they don't have to go and do a job just to survive. Yeah, we would have been been able to meet people's material needs. And so then the question is, what fills that social and spiritual set of needs that people have, which in some ways is a more difficult, thorny problem, though the political environment necessary to properly distribute the fruits of technological advancement is another problem that everyone knows I'm I'm very concerned about. Yeah, a lot of people are worried that in a post-necessary work world that folks won't enjoy their lives anymore because it's work that gives uh, gives life meaning. Personally, I'm not too concerned about that. I, I feel like I could not do a job and I could hang out with my friends and, and have a good time and I don't, don't know that I'll get sick of that. How do you feel about that issue? I'd say I'm somewhere in between, Rob, because I personally also feel like I'd have no trouble chilling out. <laughs> but But I've met hundreds, thousands of truck drivers and people in different environments where they are very much defined by their their work, often in terms of economic value, where if you're a trucker, I kid you not, like they're measuring how many dollars they make per mile. Hmm. And so every time that mile counter goes up, like it, it's a little bit more money coming to them. And so if you unplug from that, I mean, you've seen sort of the dystopian projections where you'd have kind of fake jobs where someone just plugs mm. in. For <laughs> a black them. mirror. You know, yeah, so, so there's, there's a very significant number of, of human beings I've met who would not be able to just adapt easily to relative, you know, free time. Yeah, well, one thing that makes me hopeful about that is we see globally quite a lot of variation in how much people define themselves through their work. I think the U.S., leans a bit more towards people being very work and career focused and getting a lot of their identity out of that. And there's other countries like the Netherlands famously has kind of leaned more into this. uh, It's okay to work part time. Maybe the most important thing is your friends and family and kind of work is just this thing you do to pay the bills. And that's actually totally fine and normal and isn't a threat to people's identity. So maybe over time, we can evolve a bit more towards that sort of mentality where people develop other identities that helps to substitute for what was previously this kind of something that came out of work. Well, I enjoy the 500-year time frame because then all things become possible. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the transition would take generations, in my view. And America, I agree with you, tends to be towards one extreme. Yeah. What's a technology that you're really excited to see progress over the, the next century that you think people perhaps don't, don't talk about enough right now? Well, the next 100 years, you know, I think there, there are two major issues coming down the pike. And then they're related to our politics so number one is climate change. I think most people recognize that. And then number two is the advancement of AI and different technologies that will exacerbate income inequality inevitably. And so if you ask what technologies I'm excited about in this time frame, it would be clean energy, something that allows us to be able to produce all of the energy we need that doesn't have adverse environmental impacts and some form of AI that we're convinced is relatively benign and can help drive value and also drive value in a way that's felt 
widely. And I'm going to describe something. This is a bit of inside baseball, but I think it's interesting. So I was a CNN commentator in 2020, and they asked me to develop ideas for a show. And so the show that we came up with was The Future Of, and we'd look at the future of various things. We're like, oh, yeah, that'd be a good show. Like, we'd do that. And then I, I ran for mayor of New York, and then I came back to them, and we were shooting the shit over, like, you know, it's like, okay, like, what are we going to do? Um, it turns out, you know, like I ended up uh, heading a different direction, but they said, Hey, the future of now actually is a double-edged sword. It has as much negative as positive. Hmm. And so we think we should head in a different direction. And so that, that's, I think many, in many ways, what you all are trying to combat is like, you want people to be excited about the future and be optimistic about technology. But at least the, the opinion makers, the media folks are like, uh-oh, <laughs> like, like things are starting to tend in a direction where we're not sure people are really going to dig this. So, so I just want to throw that in there as like a real life data point. Yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah, what do you think about kind of upcoming technological solutions to the suffering of animals in, in factory farming and the environmental damage that's caused by meat production, which is pretty substantial? You know, things like cellular agriculture or plant-based protein sources. That's kind of one that, uh, that looms large in my mind. I love it. Certainly any of the meat substitutes or if you can just develop meat in a way that there, you know, maybe, you know, no animals involved, (laughs) like no no suffering. I love that stuff. Anytime I have an opportunity to consume it, if I have a choice, I'll choose that because why not? Uh, And you have a sense that we will have the technology to be able to produce enough nutritional value and taste for people where they, they're not going to miss anything. Yeah. On the climate change and energy stuff, it feels like there's a lot, there's a lot of areas where people are very pessimistic about everything, but climate change feels one where there's like renewed energy about new technologies. Like obviously people are talking about solar because it's gotten so cheap and it seems like there's a lot of advances coming through on batteries, but also geothermal seems to be having kind of a renaissance this year. You know, fusion energy is back on the agenda. People are talking about like, you know, passively safe, small nuclear reactors, which I think I didn't hear at all about three or four years ago. So that's, yeah, it's an area where I think people are getting a bit psyched. I agree. That's an area for tremendous optimism. Here in the States, I think we owe Elon Musk a great deal for advancing people's both thinking about it and the implementation. I mean, there are electric car charging stations in places that they never were before. And and so I'm optimistic. When I I spoke to Elon about this uh, a little while ago, and he's definitely, as people imagine, like very, very bullish on solar relative to the other energy forms. But talking to him may also made me more bullish. So it's a Really positive feedback loop. But I, I agree, there's a lot of energy around it and it's exciting. Yeah. So you had this experience with, with CNN. I guess personally, I would like to see a bit more hopefulness in public discourse and maybe even a, you know, a dash of utopianism. I think we could use it. I agree with you. I, you know, I, I think the guy over here, you're probably friends with him, you remind me of him, is like Rutger Bregman. He kind of like mm. has managed to incept some people about, well, is utopia for realists? I mean, that's a very on-point title. Yeah, yeah, you had, a, you had a really good interview, good interview with him. I think like not only does it motivate people to work harder to try to create that world, but I think it can actually combat some of the division because we're so focused on like the problems of right now and the, and the divisions and disagreements that we have. But if you're thinking over a century, you can be like, we could make the world so much better. We could get rid of colds. You know, we could have clean energy. We could get rid of air pollution. We could, uh, we could eradicate poverty. And I think like people actually maybe have like more values in common, more more shared goals than they appreciate. Well, that's what my presidential campaign did to a significant extent, Rob, where we, we were thinking big, but people imagined a world without poverty or at least a country without poverty, and then they got excited about it. And it was fresh. It was different because there wasn't a political interest group that was invested in it, and it wasn't divisive. Uh, right now, 
the way American politics works is that it gets fueled by resources. And so there's a lot of us versus them. There's a lot of polarization. So I'm with mm-hmm. you. We have to get people excited. You're right. And I'm still working toward that. Uh, you know, I kind of regret that democracy reform isn't as utopian seeming to many as universal basic income was. But I'm now convinced that they're hand in hand and that um, mm. right now the American political system won't produce anything like UBI unless it, it gets a significant upgrade. Yeah. We'll talk a bit about the voting reform later. But I guess, you know, improving how we make decisions together can be revolutionary in the same way that some of these other technologies can be, because it enables us to make better decisions, you know, across the board to like invest in better science and technology and to solve poverty, because we're actually able to reason together and like, you know, choose solutions that are... that are. I like it. I I like it, Rob. Right. They are very much connected. I mean, they are obviously connected. It's my one reason I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, okay. So moving on for a second from the positive vision to ways that we might fail to get that world, I guess, what's the most probable way that humanity kind of fails to achieve the future that you would like in your view? Oh gosh, you can just look around us, man. (laughs) Not not much being left to the imagination. Um, (laughs) so, so, So I like to think about things in terms of abundance versus scarcity. And a friend of mine, Xander Schultz, said to me, like, we have a a window of opportunity when we actually have the resources to provide for everyone, but that's going to be threatened by climate change and authoritarianism. And he is correct. (laughs) So uh, climate change is the big one. And in an environment of shrinking resources and flooding coastal areas and the rest of it, then people are going to be very much overtaken by scarcity. There's going to be a sense like, oh, you know, resources are shrinking, not enough to go around. And then I think it's going to end up leading to some very, very nasty negative sentiments. Mm. And then that ends up leading through to authoritarianism, where you see many democracies struggling with this a little bit. Um, The U.S. is struggling with it, in my opinion. So so those are the two biggest ways that we can screw it up. And that is the way we're heading right now, in large part because we have institutional leadership that doesn't really care (laughs) whether, (laughs) whether these things get addressed. Because their, you know, their their professional incentives don't line up with it. Like, you know, no one loses their job if the Earth gets a little bit less uh, inhabitable. And so, so that so that that's the most likely scenario. I think people can sense this. It's one reason why positivity is a little bit harder to come by. Though, again, I'm I'm extraordinarily grateful to you all for galvanizing energy around positive visions. I like to think I do the same thing. And one of the reasons why I am excited is that, uh, like. Hopefully enough of us will get fed up with the twin threats of climate change and authoritarianism and try and turn us toward abundance. Yeah, yeah. If someone gave you a billion dollars, Andrew, and said, you know, I'm also really worried about political decline or authoritarianism in the, in the United States, uh, and I'd like you to kind of make grants in order to try to reduce the, the risk of that happening. Do you see any great opportunities out there for, for helping to heal things? Oh, my gosh, do I? <laughs> yes, I love this question so much. So this is genuinely like what I'm focusing on every day nowadays. So I just want to go through the the U.S. political system. I mean, I guess a lot of people are probably American here, but... It's about half and half. But uh, American democracy is genuinely under a lot of stress slash threat, and it could disappear over the next several years, in my opinion. Um, You already have a position where millions of Americans don't believe in vote totals. Trump's probably going to run again. Uh, Depending upon the economic environment, he'd either be favored to win or he'll say he won regardless, and then we can look forward to political violence and protests and, and stress everywhere. 
Political stress in the United States is at literal civil war levels, according to Peter Turch and other scholars. So if you gave me a billion dollars and said, hey, fix this, the, the path forward is to try and reduce the polarization in the United States. Because right now, 42% of both Democrats and Republicans view the other side as evil or their mortal enemies. And you have this binary dynamic. By the way, this is historically unusual and also globally unusual. Hmm. America is the only major democracy with two parties. Uh, it's a terrible design. The founders would be shocked and horrified that we are limping along with two parties. It makes no sense. <laughs> like, like there's nothing in the Constitution about this, for sure. It just kind of arose, and these two parties decided essentially to trade power. But these two parties were ideologically very, very similar until relatively recently, until the 60s and 70s. And so you only now see the fruits of a polarized duopoly and the disaster that brings. One of the disasters is that if you have one of the two major parties to come to bad leadership, everyone's incentives to fall in line or they lose their jobs. So the counterexample to this was Senator Lisa Murkowski, who's the only Republican senator who voted to impeach Trump earlier this year and is also up for re-election. Her approval rating among Republicans in Alaska tanked. It's now 6%. So it is indeed politically suicidal to go against Donald Trump. But one reason why she did this is that they switched in Alaska from closed party primaries to open primaries and ranked choice voting last year. So now instead of being beholden to the 10 to 20 percent most extreme partisan voters in Alaska, she can appeal to the general public. And if 50.1 percent of the Alaskan public says you're okay, then she can still come back. So if you gave me a billion dollars, we would do what they did in Alaska in, let's call it, 15 of the 24 states in in the country that allow for ballot initiatives the same way that Alaska does. No act of Congress needed. All you need is a popular wave of people saying, look, I'm sick of my leaders being beholden to the 10 to 20 percent most extreme voters. It disenfranchises the majority of the country. Right now, 10 percent of American voters elect essentially 83 percent of the representatives. You have uh, an approval rating of 28% for Congress and a re-election rate of 92%. Um, the incentives are all messed up. And if you had a billion dollars, you could run ballot initiative campaigns in over a dozen states and have a chance to win them all. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, so basically you would fund uh, you know campaigns to do ballot initiatives in order to change the primary system such that, I guess there's a bunch of changes that, that one could make, but in order to, in this case, in order to have kind of a jungle primary where everybody runs and then the top two candidates go through to the final and then they, then well, they go. The, then the, they the go top five candidates, actually. Oh, top five. Top five oh. Can- and then do you do ranked choice voting? Yes. So ranked, ranked choice voting is also a moderating impulse. So what you'd see if you made this change is that all of a sudden people would have to appeal to every point of view and you'd have to win over a majority of the population on some level to get in. And here's the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that even if you had the exact same humans in office, their incentives would be dramatically better. Because instead of being like, oh, if I go against my party, then I lose my job, so I better just shut up and do whatever the party says – Then it's like, hey, if I decide to exercise some independence, as long as the majority of my district thinks it's sound, then, you know, I can keep my job. So even if you end up with the same person, if you have a different incentive structure, then you see better governance, better independence. And oh, by the way, less authoritarianism, because you know that in the Republican Party, there are essentially two parties right now. There's like the Trump Republicans and then the moderate Republicans who secretly wish Trump would go away. (laughs) And so if you unlock their incentive structure, 
you would see many more of them act like Senator Murkowski did, where it's like, look, I don't love this guy. And then, you know, they'd have a chance to come back in because a majority of voters across the board agree with them, not a majority of Republicans, which is who they're beholden to right now, but a majority of all voters. Hmm. I know a bunch of people who are also working on ballot initiatives in order to do voting reform at the local and state level in the, in the US. We actually interviewed, I think, the, the founder of the Center for Election Science, Aaron Hamlin, uh, a couple of years ago. And he, he was doing a similar thing, but he was trying to get up something called approval voting, where basically you just get to say yay or nay to every candidate that's running. Yeah. What do you think of approval voting as against the uh, ranked choice voting? I love approval voting. It's great. And I've, I've seen arguments where it is better than ranked choice voting in some situations. I looked at this and said, you know, I'm going to push ranked choice voting because it addresses the problems that, you know, I'm most concerned about with polarization. But it also has a bunch of wins already where it's being used in 50 cities around the country, including New York City. There are organizations that have been deploying it. It's going to be tough to change the voting system in the U.S. So you might as well use a system that at least has some traction (laughs) in the world. But that all that said, big fan of approval voting. Approval voting would be way better as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Like uh, the plurality voting system is terrible. It's so dumb. Yeah, it's, it's the it's worst like, possible. Oh. It's just terrible. <laughs> yeah, 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 we have. Um, so if, if someone were to push for approval voting or star voting, I, I'd be excited about them. I just think that RCV has more momentum, more traction. It gets rid of the spoiler effect. It, it allows for moderation. It has a better chance of success in the immediate term. Yeah. Speaking of the of the spoiler effect, when I asked uh, the audience for questions to put to you, a lot of people were really worried that you say might run for president in 2024 or, or the forward party might put forward another candidate. And basically you would end up sabotaging whoever you know is most similar to you in terms of policies or, or style because of this spoiler effect that the plurality vote creates. Are you basically going to wait until there's some sort of voting reform before you maybe start running candidates in elections where it doesn't seem like you're in you know the, the top two or three? Uh, we need to race towards ranked choice voting or some other more modern voting system that allows for different points of view to emerge as quickly as possible. And I personally am a little bit saddened by how everyone is just scared about the spoiler effect because that's the kind of cudgel that the duopoly uses on everybody, really. It's Mm. like, oh, we're going to do something different. Ah, you're going to mess it up. You're going to mess it up. It's like, well, okay, let's, in theory, does the Democratic Party not control the levers of government in at least, you know, let's call it half of these areas? Like, if you're genuinely concerned about the spoiler effect, why don't we just change it to ranked choice voting? You control your own elections. You certainly control your own primaries. I mean, you know, <laughs> but you control, like, the, the mechanics, you know, in, in many of these states. And so that, to me, is a solutions-oriented approach. It's like, well, you're concerned about the spoiler effect. Let's solve for it. So I guess I guess to some extent it could be used as kind of a threat that you'll run and other people will run and they'll create this spoiler effect, like making the election a bit a bit of a nonsense unless people go and actually reform the election. So let's like let's go do that. that, that that's one of my arguments, Rob, is that if, if I were to, to just push, push, push and be like, hey, you concerned about it, fix it, fix it, fix it, then it has a better chance of being fixed. Then if we're all like, oh, like, no, everyone stands still until they get around to fixing it, which, by the way, they never will. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I can, I, I, can, I can see that argument. I guess I, I would hate to see Trump elected in 2024 as, as like the implementation of that threat, though. It seems like a very high price to pay uh, to me. Oh, yeah. So, you know, and, and this is something that I, I think people, at least I hope people sense about me, is that like I'm a rational dude, you know, I'm like I'm not going to do something, do something really stupid. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I suppose there are a lot of opportunities to put up these ballot initiatives to change the, the voting reform. So I suppose that, that can be kind of maybe the, the first line of attack can be doing that, like getting money and then running those campaigns everywhere that, it, that is possible. And then I guess the forward party. 2022. Can, like, 
We, yeah. yeah, we've got one cycle to try and uh, make some enormous headway. So if you've got a billion dollars and you want to fix American <laughs> democracy, you genuinely could. The entire investment in this area right now is $153 million. Yeah. It's way too low. It's stupid. This is something that I also find frustrating. So to the extent that there's something I can do to help, it should be this. It's like out of all the money that's getting spent on a lot of things, don't you think preserving American democracy and making it more resistant to authoritarianism is probably worth a a billion bucks or more? It's probably worth like $100 billion. It's just that for whatever reason, philanthropists aren't seeing this. And oh, by the way, none of the political incentives of the media organizations are around this. It's a, you know, like... $2.65 $2.65 billion was spent by the two parties in the last cycle alone just on the congressional races, you know? And then $153 million is getting spent on actually fixing the underlying system. Of the $2.65 billion, the vast majority of that money canceled each other out <laughs> because they're just like using it against each other. Whereas you can actually pull, pull the rope sideways a bit by like shifting how things, how the system works. Yes. So if you've got the money, let's freaking do it. Reach out to me. And yeah, we'll, we'll put the money to work. But yeah. this isn't hypothetical, you know what I mean? I'm not a, like, and this is one thing I, I you know, I want to push as well. It's like, I want to help create positive visions for the world we can live in. But I'm also, you know, a, a parent who's concerned about the world my kids are going to grow up in and the rest of it. It's like, shit's going poorly. <laughs> you know, it's like, we have to like, we have to go. I mean, we have to go fix it. Because the people who are listening to this podcast are among the more likely people to fix it. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to have some more episodes on voting reform in the, in the next year or two. So listeners should uh, stay tuned for that. I guess shifting gears a little bit. On the show, we regularly talk not only about ways that things could go super well, but also about ways that the future could go really badly. And kind of the classic list of worries are, you know, climate change, as you were saying, but also, you know, artificial intelligence advance has gone really wrong, biotechnology advances being used for harm through weapons or, or otherwise or through accidents. You know, a war between nations, you know, especially one involving nuclear weapons could just completely ruin ruin everything. On a recent episode with Carl Schulman, the public thinker, he pointed out that using standard cost benefit analysis, you could justify enormous efforts to prevent catastrophes from those causes and others. Because say, a cumulative 1% risk of everyone in the US dying from one of those events, which seems more likely than, you know, than 1% to me over the next century, that would be worth spending up to $13 trillion to avoid, just from the perspective of American lives saved, just using the standard kind of way that the government analyzes the value of, of life saved. And it seems like it would cost much less than $13 trillion to reduce the risk of that by, by one percentage point over the next century. So yeah, do, do you think we underinvest in avoiding or preparing for those sorts of tail risks, you know, low probability events that would be super catastrophic if they happened? Of course we do. I made this <laughs> argument on the presidential trail. I went to crowds in New Hampshire and Iowa and I just asked them this, how much do you think climate change is going to cost us? <laughs> and they like, think about it. And, and I was like, look, economy is $22 trillion, just, just so you have a frame of reference. Like, what do you all think? And, you know, they came back with, like, you know, very big numbers. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't even include all the human lives that are going to be lost. It's like you yeah, could justify... Just lost GDP. Yeah, you could, you could justify tens of trillions of dollars in investment easily uh, in trying to prevent climate change. And and that's just in the U.S. So the, the problem is, and it's, again, one reason I love this community, is that if you think about it species-wide, then all of a sudden, of course, all of these investments become extraordinarily not just sensible, but necessary and rewarding. Uh, it's just that's not where political incentives are. And if there was like a, an American political leader is like, hey, guess what we're going to do? We're going to like, you know, spend a ton of money on these far reaching problems and whatnot. It's like a disease that's born of the political equivalent of our stock market, you know, moving back and forth. It's like, how long is the news cycle? 
24 hours less nowadays, you know, like, like how, how was your performance evaluated quarterly at the longest? Yeah. <laughs> so, so who, you know, so who's rewarded for thinking that long term? No one in American politics. So, you know, they just don't do it. An, an incredible example of this is, you know, I mean, the U.S. spent trillions of dollars responding to the damage of the, of the pandemic, you know, a, economic stimulus, uh, you know, trying to make people whole and undo the damage that, that was done by people having to stay home. I think it was like trillions of dollars spent on the on the CARES Act. But they're currently kind of bickering about whether to spend $30 billion, you know, advancing the technologies that would arrest and stop the next pandemic and doing all of the preparation that we should have done last time so that we didn't have such a such a disaster. And that's less than like 1%, it's about 1% or 2% of the amount of money we spent. And that's just the money, let alone the lives lost. It's, it's just, yeah, the desire to always be reactionary rather than getting ahead and thinking about how can we stop the damage in the first place is, is crazy to me. Yeah, it's not great. You know, and, and the conclusions I've drawn about the system, Rob, really are that the duopoly is going to kill us and that the two sides don't really care about getting it right. Uh, they just care about eking out the next win mm. and they just trade power back and forth in D.C. while we all sink into the mud or, you know, get sick with the next pandemic or uh, suffer from climate change. The institutional incentives are all wrong. And the, the world will just continue to suffer as a result. It's, it's why I think there needs to be a genuine political restoration and complete rejuvenation of the system. This, this duopoly is just awful. You know, I mean, they've been, they've been trading power back and forth for, you know, 160 years or so. And the faith in the system is just going lower and lower. You see with Trump winning, 62% of Americans want an alternative to the duopoly even now. And then if someone actually suggests an alternative to the duopoly, then everyone's like, oh, no, you're going to screw it up for, you know, like the, the good guys against the bad guys, whoever that happens to be. Hmm. Yeah, you've, you've talked more about tail risks than the great majority of people in, in public life over, over the last couple of years. But I guess it's, it's not something you talk about all the time. And I wonder, is that just, it's something that people don't want to hear about so much? It's like hard to get people energized? And perhaps like, I guess you're maybe suffering through the same thing that all of the other people in politics are, which is that people want to hear about like the problems that are, that are right now, not thinking about how to prevent, you know, the problems of the future. Well, it's one reason why I love UBI, because it's a problem of right now and also helps pave the way for a brighter future. You know, like meets, meets everyone where they are. Uh, I think to the extent that this discussion has generated a ton of energy, it is around climate change and young people mm. who stood up and were like, look, you know, you're destroying my chance for a decent life, which, you know, some people take as uh, dramatic. But then you think about it, and you're like, well, it's probably right. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. I wonder whether that's got a renewed bunch of interest lately. At least my perception is people are talking about climate change much more than five years ago. And I wonder whether it's because we are on the cusp of having the solutions. It doesn't feel as hopeless as it did. And the people are excited. It's like, you know, it just doesn't cost that much money to put up solar panels. Maybe we should do it, climate change or no. Yeah, it's true. The technology's gotten better by leaps and bounds. And so it, it does seem more immediate for people to do the right things. Yeah, we've been talking about voting reform. I guess... Do you think from a voting perspective or from a societal decision-making perspective, it'd be reasonable to think of future generations as kind of a disenfranchised interest group? Because they don't get to vote. They don't have any kind of direct influence over our politics. But our decisions today through climate change and all sorts of other issues you know, can potentially have a huge influence on, on their well-being. I love it. There should be like the, the unborn generations lobby where it's like, hey, we don't <laughs> exist yet, but you're totally screwing us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you don't even need to wait for the hypothetical. It's like, frankly, it's young people in the U.S. too. They look up and are like, hey, you're always screwing us. And then, uh, you know, because in America, you can see we have a gerontocracy. So if, mm -hmm. if you're young people, there's also a circular thing where young people don't vote at the levels that old people do. I, I little known fact, I mean, maybe, you know, but like I, I won the Iowa 
youth poll. Interesting. Um, so, so if it was just young people, I, you know, I might be the president today. But then when it got to old people, I did much worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, I think Wales and Scotland have recently created uh, commissioners for future generations. So I, I think something like the, the thing is that when they pass new legislation, the the commissioner can comment on what impact this will have on the on the unborn, whether it raises or lowers their well being, and the government's meant to consider and and respond to that, uh, which seems like it's kind of a small step in the right direction of taking seriously these billions of people who we're going to have impacts on. I love it. You know that I wish there was a future lobby here in the US. Yeah. Well, yeah, what what's the most important thing that we could maybe do, you know, other than the things we've already talked about with voting reform to try to get policy formation to better reflect the interests of people who will be alive in 50, 100, 100 150 years. Is there anything like cheap and easy that might help to put this more in people's heads? Yes, I think there is. All right, so check it out. I ran for president and then after my campaign ended, I started a 501c4 Humanity Forward. Uh, that has now become a lobbying firm. So believe it or not, there is actually now a D.C. lobbying firm on behalf of humanity. Uh, And so what are the issues it's advocating for? Basic income and cash relief, democracy reform, sensible cryptocurrency regulation. I don't know how people feel about that on this this podcast. Like, you know, like you don't want to, uh, like, kill the, the crypto yeah, the kill the crypto industry. Yeah, yeah, I'm a modest crypto skeptic, but it should be given a fair shot to change things. And it's quite frustrating to see it kind of being killed in the crib a bit. Yes, uh, you know, a carbon tax. I don't know how people feel about that particular policy, but we have a real life lobbying firm mm. with a budget in the low millions right now. It's punching way above its weight class because when they meet with congressional offices, they're mm. very benign. They're just giving them data, being like, hey, you know, cash relief popular in your district. Uh, you know, here are some of the stories. Here are some of the people in the, the member's office. Because if you were a, a congressional policy staffer or whatnot, and you, you were dealing with like a humanity forward org that was just like feeding you positive information about things and like, you know, like that's a hundred times more pleasant than dealing with like the tobacco lobby or like the, you know, some, some like, like the financial services lobby where they're like, hey, change this rule, do this, don't change this rule, it's going to hurt us. And then you're like, all right, all right, all right. And then Humanity Forward comes in and is like, hey, you know, like some of these things would be really good for people. And you're like, oh, cool. Like, like so, so when you talk about something that we could do to actually get this in front of policymakers, I'm super excited. Of the things I've done, I am perhaps most proud of Humanity Forward that we have professional lobbyists because if you're standing outside chanting and screaming it doesn't matter you know what i mean like at this point it doesn't matter um it, but if you manage to make it seem like it's going to help people stay in office it's going to be politically advantageous it's going to help people too then they're like oh okay like i can do this and and, and it actually serves my goals um so if you want to help on that front, you can check out uh, humanityforward.com. It's a C4. And then we also have a C3 foundation that just has uh, cash relief pilots and then tells people's stories. Uh, can you believe that we have these benign things? I'll, I'll tell you all. So people think about me in the forward party and democracy reform right now, Rob. But there are four legs to this stool I'm trying to build. Uh, leg number one is this lobbying firm, Humanity Forward. Leg number two is the C3, which is a foundation. Like number three is the forward party is this political movement that most people now associate with me. And then like number four is going to be a media organization that tries to put out some of these messages. So, you know, working on it. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, congrats on getting that on getting that going. It seems like there might be a lot of opportunities where a lobbying firm can think like what's something that's both in people's political interests that would also be really good for future generations. They're trying to thread that needle. Yes, exactly. That's like the jujitsu yeah. uh, in Mal Rob, where it's like, well, yeah, we just gotta go to them and be like, Hey, this will help you. And oh, by the way, it will help like future generations, you know, grow up in a world that's not burning. <laughs> Double win. Equally important issues, equally important issues, Andrew. Um, I guess another possible institution that, that could be set up, it, it's great that that exists. Uh, my worry might be like, what if people lose interest over time and it's hard to really sustain the funding at, at the ideal level? And I, I imagine already would want it to be much larger than it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, right, right now it's got a budget of like several million a year, which is way too low. Um, it should be in the tens of millions. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, but I'm still very proud because even at our current level, we've done a lot of really awesome work. For example, the child tax credit is going to be, you know, continued for at least another year. And that's an enormous anti-poverty win. Yeah. So one institution that the U.S. has, which helps to bring some sense and like thinking about long-term impacts of policymaking is the Congressional Budget Office, which helps to you know, analyze what are the budgetary, long-term budgetary implications of, of different policies, helps to bring some some numbers and reality to, to people's thinking. I wonder whether we should have a similar organization that looks at policies and tries to forecast what impact might this have in 50 or 100 or 150 years time? Like what will future generations think looking back on this policy that we're making? And it might just not, not turn out the obvious stuff, like we should be doing more about climate change, but an analytical office like that might find, you know, we're radically under investing in biotechnology research or like biomedical research, because that, you know, future generations, we can make these advances that will make their lives so much healthier and so much better. And that's, that's one way that we're neglecting to benefit them is not in putting enough in science and tech now. I like that too. It's like the future CBO. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The CBO from the future comes in and says, Hey, you're under investing in regenerative agriculture, which we are. Yeah. Yeah, you focus a lot on US politics and get asked all the time about what, what, what America should change. But about half of our audience is in you know, the UK, EU, Australia, New Zealand, uh, India. Well, yeah, what's one thing you wish other countries would do to support the US in making the world a, a better and safer place? Gosh, I mean, from the outside looking in, you must be like, what the hell's wrong with you people? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Well, and and this is the great insight of my book that, you know, I discovered is that the American system is set up to fail. Mm. (laughs) So so that's why I'm I'm now so determined to try and change that Uh, from from the outside looking in. I mean, I I feel like, you know, you all can just uh, hopefully just continue to serve as, you know, examples of systems that are are more resilient and doing things well. Certainly, Mm. I would love to move to a more multi-party parliamentary type system in the U.S., Mm. Um, and I wouldn't be so naive as to think like everyone else feels like, oh, we've got it all figured out. So, you know, as long as you just keep on doing well, that's a big win. Yeah, I, I was reading um, a research post on the Effective Altruism Forum last week, and it was saying that maybe people had underestimated how useful it is to get up new policy ideas and new like governance systems in small countries like, you know, Switzerland or Sweden or, or you know, even, even the UK or Australia to some extent, because if, if they work out, as people think, then people notice and they can be copied in, in progressively bigger countries and, and, and bigger situations. So the direct impact, say, of changing something in Sweden might be small, but then the demonstration effect could be, could be quite large and that could end up being the, the dominant one. I love it. I try and take ideas from other countries every chance I get. Uh, you know, it's one of the cases I'm making around American democracy is like, uh, so Jonathan Haidt said recently, the worst number of political parties you can have in a country is one, but the second worst number is two. Yeah. <laughs> so when you, 
And so when you take an example of something like Sweden, one example I say is like Sweden has eight parties. Like, you know, that seems better. So if Sweden has another program that's also working and you can be like, look, look what they did. Though, unfortunately, in the American political environment now, any example you use ends up being politically loaded or freighted. So there are a lot of Americans who, if you said Sweden did something, they'd you know <laughs> yeah. be, be mad. They'd be like, we don't want to be like the Swedes, those accursed Swedes <laughs> with their socialist tendencies and they're caring about families. Now, I mean, I'm only half kidding. I mean, that, that you know, it's a... <laughs> you have to choose a country like Greece where people are like, is Greece red or blue? I don't, I don't know. I'm confused. <laughs> Maybe we could do whatever Greece did. <laughs> yes, yes. We need, we need, I need, I need different examples from different people. It's true. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about advances in artificial intelligence for a bit. I guess, yeah, back in 2018, seeing how technology was causing a lot of people in America to kind of permanently, tragically drop out of the labor market was one of the reasons that you decided to throw yourself into politics in the first place. And during your presidential campaign in 2019, you talked a lot about your concern that rapid improvements in artificial intelligence could potentially displace a whole lot more workers from their jobs in coming years at a faster and faster rate. I guess, since then, has that process progressed faster or slower than perhaps what you were expecting? Uh, it's been uneven where some of the things that I was most concerned about that you could probably lengthen the time frame, for example, limo drivers or truck drivers. Mm. And then in, in some other areas, they've invested more in it more quickly because of COVID, where people have been uh, staying home more. You know, retail has been transitioning in different ways and, and they're, they're automating a lot of, for example, the cleaning jobs at Sam's Club or even the meat packers at Tyson's Foods. So it's been heading in different directions and different parts of the economy. I think the general concern is still very, very, <laughs> like, very pressing. Mm. Uh, over half of companies reported investing more in automation technology over this last year and a half as a result of COVID. So you know it's coming. One of the examples I use that everyone can understand is that 2 million Americans answer phones for a living, and Google's AI can do that probably today. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's picking up steam, even if some of the industries are not being impacted as quickly as some might have feared, myself included. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself an interesting spot on this question because I think in the long term or even the medium term, I'm, I'm with you. I expect there to be some period where we see job displacement pick up and happen faster than, than at historical rates. But I guess if I look at the economic data right now, it's like, you know, people have always been getting displaced from jobs due to technological change and other social changes. And it seems like it's kind of at roughly the same rate that it has been historically. So it seems like, you know, there's advances in AI, but maybe they're happening at a similar rate to previous to previous changes. But in the long term, I think that there will be this change and we should be preparing for when that happens. And we don't know when it will happen. It, you know, it could be five years, could be 15 years, could be 25 well, Rob, I'm just going to throw one thing out there that is empirically true, which is that the American labor force participation rate just keeps on going down and down. It's one reason why people here are losing their minds. And so you, you can cast about for any number of explanations for that. But right now, I think that's that has to be the clearest marker of where we are. You know, and you could say like, hey, maybe that's not AI and automation. Maybe it's other things. There are a lot of things combined, but but every tenth of a percent of the labor force participation rate dropping in the U.S. is hundreds of thousands of people leaving the workforce. And I just want people to think about what that means in those households, you know what I mean? Like, like Or communities. I mean, there are all these people that are dropping out and it's hard to get back in. And I believe that's driving a lot of the cultural and political issues as well. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm just taking a look at the labor force participation rate here. I guess it seems like it was slowly declining from 1995 to 20, 2008. And then it really started going down, which I guess the financial crisis just created these potentially very long lasting things. And then it was surprisingly, despite like quite a booming economy, it was fairly flat from 2015 through 2020, which is interesting. I like I think wages were starting to go up then, like the labor force was reasonably hot, but it's interesting the labor force participation rate wasn't returning, which is kind of consistent maybe with your story that there's structural challenges. Yeah, there's there's structural challenges and and people are not getting dragged back in. And then what happened um, from 2020 to now? I I don't have the graph. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it obviously plummeted during COVID and now it's recovered maybe half of the way to where it originally was. So it's like, I think it lost almost two percentage points and now it's one percentage point back. So, yeah, it's a... Well, fingers crossed in, in coming years, we'll manage to get almost all the way back or like all the way back up. Yeah, so that, that, that is the concern. You know, if you're still 1% down, I mean, in a workforce of whatever it is, 200 million, yeah, I mean, that's like million. 2 million more people. Yeah. So so that that's the stuff where if you look at it, it's like you could say it's like maybe it wasn't AI and the rest of it, but it's happening. And a lot of those jobs were retail jobs or jobs that catered to folks who are working in urban downtowns. I, I just heard that in New York City, only 8% of workers are back in the office five days a week. And that's even now when it's moderately safe to do so. Yeah. So you can imagine the effect that's having on urban retail. Yeah. It seems like kind of machine learning and artificial intelligence research, the state of the art science there is really impressive. You know, it, it impresses me on a, on a regular basis. But I suppose that the transition of that science into actual products and into the workplace, like it can be quite a gradual, gradual process. And it's possible that perhaps some like structural weaknesses in our ability to apply new technology is helping to give us some breathing space by slowing down perhaps how quickly people are getting displaced, because it just does take a long time to figure out how to get them to work in, you know, in an actual customer situation. Oh, yeah. Like if you're a mom and pop restaurant, like you're not getting a robot any you, you know, you have some freaking yeah. like cheap kitchen staff and the rest of it. And like, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I've run small businesses. So like even while I'm talking about technology writ large, like I, I know that the average firm might not be adopting this stuff. The, the problem is that you have the folks who have the highest level of financial resources and incentives who will adopt this stuff, you know, and in some cases going to suck for a while too. They're just like, oh, this thing stinks, but then they'll get it right. Mm. <laughs> and then they'll get all these competitive advantages as a result. I'll, I'll share with you a story. Like I was talking to a friend, he works in private equity. Uh, they bought a fruit drink company, like mm. juices, they juice things like bottle juices. They had warehouses and manufacturing facilities full of workers, many of them migrant uh, Latino workers. And then they made the switch during COVID to juicing robots, Mm. where like before they had all these people in there, and then now they have juicing robots. And it stunk for a while, the transition stunk, but now they've got it down. Uh, They're loving it. And they, you know, use 80% fewer workers and the rest Mm. of it. I mean, so like, is the average juicing company doing that? No. But like, is is there going to be some leading company that does it? Yeah, or or the or the they'll end up squeezing them out. <laughs> Look at that, is a pun, squeezing them out. But <laughs> but it's like, but that's like the the American kind of winner take all system at this point. That if you can get an edge, then you can apply it across like a bigger and bigger part of the industry. Yeah. 
So it seems like, you know, the story that you and I both believe that, you know, sooner or later, it's more likely than not that this is going to be really big changes created by AI advances. And, you know, that's not just what we think. It's like lots of people think that. That might even be the, the kind of the default position. But it seems like that view that AI systems are likely to become capable of doing, you know, many things at the human level relatively soon, such that they can substitute for lots or possibly even, you know, most jobs in the economy sometime soon. In that world, in that AI technology world, it's going to be broadly capable and able to outthink humanity in many domains. But if AI is able to do that, wouldn't we expect the effect on society to be, you know, even more revolutionary than just a lot of people losing their jobs or big changes in the workplace? I mean, we would likely in that world be in the process of handing over the reins of decision making on all kinds of important decisions, you know, the ability to run all kinds of different processes to this other species of of machine intelligence. In, In a way, it's like, you know, an even bigger, like historical moment, potentially that calls for thinking about more than just the labor market. Yeah, it's, there are some very big changes afoot. And again, there are going to be some very sophisticated organizations that take advantage of these technologies before anyone else. And because they're going to be at the top of these billion dollar, trillion dollar firms, then you're, you're going to see even like an incremental improvement result in tens of billions of dollars of, <laughs> of value and the rest of it. Yeah. So this is something that I think we should expect, you know, especially because a lot of what's fueling these AI algorithms is just data. And so if you're Amazon, you just have much, much more access to more data. And so it compounds, you know what I mean? It'll compound on itself. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. You wanted to connect that there's going to be big technological changes and, and you made that real for people and made it a practical question by talking about universal basic income. But I wonder whether like now that so many people are on board with that and have accepted that, it might be time for you to run ahead of the discussion again and say, like, it's not only about the labor market. It's about like a huge transformation, like the biggest transformation in society we might ever see could happen in, in the next century. Because you're a great communicator. You've managed to get ahead of where people already are and get people thinking bigger picture about how the future could just be really wild. And we need to <laughs> need to have some ideas of mind for how we're going to manage manage that transition with artificial intelligence and and with other other technologies as well. Amen, Rob. I mean, I'm happy to do that. Like, you know, my my new gear is trying to get us past this duopoly that I, I think is designed to fail us. Actually, it's designed to make us insane first while it's failing us. <laughs> <laughs> And turn us against each other and generally have it devolve. I guess possibly it limits the conversation. Yes, and it does limit the conversation. And there's no real accountability. So I'm with you. Like if there are things that I can end up communicating, I now see this as my role in American life is to try and convey a sense of what's coming to enough people. Uh, someone called me, it was Joe Rogan actually, but Joe Rogan called me the Paul Revere of automation. Mm. And you know, I was like, oh, that's nice of him. So hopefully I can do the same thing for some other big ideas beyond democracy reform. Yeah. Well, let's, let me throw one at you and uh, or like a way of making this real and like practical in the way that the UBEI did on the, on the labor market side. I guess, you know, as you know, there's two really well-run and well-resourced organizations whose explicit goal is to develop artificial general intelligence that can try to tackle kind of almost any intellectual problem. That's open AI and DeepMind, or Google DeepMind. You know, experts think they have a good shot at succeeding, might be 10 years, might be 50 years, might be 100 years. Things could go slower or faster, but it could be a really big deal. And there's this idea floating around that it's possible that the company that invents an advanced general intelligence, either the software or the necessary hardware, could, as you're saying, earn you know hundreds or thousands of trillions of dollars in profit because they would just have the key to unlocking untold amounts of productivity. And one proposed solution to that is called the windfall clause, like under which AI companies and maybe kind of any kind of company would commit to give away all their profits beyond some very high point, say, you know, 100x return on investment. So they can earn 100x what they, what they put in. But beyond that, 
the return should go to the general public along some lines, uh, you know, potentially, you know, universal basic income, I suppose. What's the meme? It's a fully automated luxury uh, gay space communism. <laughs> but basically, like a company shouldn't be able to grab all of these resources. It should be that the cornucopia should be distributed more broadly. Yeah. Do you have any, have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm very much for a measure like that. One of the things I was arguing for was an AI tax, an AI VAT, some, something that harnesses mm. the gains. And the example I use for people is if Google's AI can do the work of 2 million call center workers, how much is Google going to pay in taxes on that? And then you think about it, it's like, well, Google doesn't seem to pay meaningful taxes at all. Mm. <laughs> it's like, that's about right. And I know OpenAI, I think, it, you know, is like they're wholesome. So if they do come up with this, they would like it to be uh, something that benefits not just a uh, couple firms. Yeah. You know, they'd want it to benefit the public. OpenAI is committed to some form of the windfall clause, basically, in their in their structure. So there's only so much money they can make before they have to give it away to people. Yes. So I'm very much for this windfall clause. And I'm grateful that other people are already committing to some version of it. Yeah, I guess at the Thank very- you, Sam Altman. Sorry, I just continue. <laughs> yeah, there's Sam Altman. Um, oh, unfortunately, I can't remember the name of the of the author of this paper. I think it was from the Future of Humanity Institute, but it's about the windfall clause. We'll, we'll stick up a link to it so people can check it out. I guess the windfall clause is maybe there's like voluntarily a voluntary agreement. But I guess as you're saying, in a world where AI is doing so much of the work, we would need to rethink the tax system. So think we have a tax system now that's designed around most people earning a labor income. We, we should not be taxing human labor in the vast majority of cases, you know, as an example. Yeah. You tax things you don't want more of. You want more labor. This is one of the things I'm passionate about. It's like you see the declining U.S. workforce, which has disastrous social and cultural effects. And so I would want to rethink our tax system. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I suppose academics don't like to maybe think about things that are this, uh, well, that seems speculative and strange, but it could be a very interesting open question, like in a more AI-ish economy, how should we, like, what does standard tax theory say about how we ought to extract some of that so that we can distribute it and everyone can have a good life? It's a, yeah, good economics. That is one of the big questions. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's get that AI tax in and then enable luxury Subsistence, gay space, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Fully automated luxury gay space communism, yeah. (laughs) Or at least social democracy. Uh, Yeah, we'll stick up a link to your your AI tax idea. Yeah, I know that you tweeted that back in 2019, you spoke with the Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom about the possibility of AI advances going, you know, more seriously awry because we fail to align AI with the values that we have. And so they go off and pursue goals that we never would have wanted them to pursue. Yeah. Have you spent much time thinking or learning about that possible risk scenario uh, since then? Not as much as I'd like. Um, You know, I spent some time with Kai-Fu Lee, who's one of the thinkers Mm. on this. I I think our expectations in this space should be negative. Um, Mm. (laughs) What do I mean by that? It's like that our expectations should be negative in the sense that, you know, like you have a competitive dynamic where people are trying to come up with better AI and better applications. And it's often wedged in a firm. And so, you should expect this to exacerbate inequality in various ways because that's just the, the way the market dynamics will play. And I'm a little bit less concerned about, I, and you know, there's some people, you know, beat me up for this or disagree. It's like, you know, like the singularity and the other big macro issues. To your earlier point, it's like, look, if there's a minuscule possibility of something that's species threatening, then you should take it very seriously and invest trillions of dollars in it. Totally agree with that. <laughs> so, so, so very, very grateful that there are people that are working on it. And I guess when I say we should have negative expectations is at this point, you're seeing so many failings and failures. Um, I do have a higher confidence level in some of the AI organizations. You know, I know some of the people 
I have low estimation in government, which I, I think is one of the prerequisites to what you're describing. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's like where people talk about like sensible adoption or guardrails and the whatnot. And, and a lot of my mind goes to like, who the hell's providing these guardrails? You know, it's like the, the government, it's like the government doesn't understand the stuff at all. You know, doesn't care for the most part because it doesn't get them a uh, press cycle. And so that that's why I, I'd be concerned about it is that I don't expect our governments to be on the ball on this issue. Yeah, I suppose I can totally see how you would uh, be pessimistic given that you're working in in politics the way you are. I, I feel a little bit more optimistic because I suppose I see so many people accept now. It's so broadly accepted that there's technical engineering challenges here that have to be addressed at some point before we can be handing over like really important decision-making procedures to AIs. And we need, we need to fix some of the issues that we have with AIs that are already deployed. And it's also very broadly accepted that there's big social, economic, political, international relations issues here and that a lot of people you know, who I meet are really excited to get into this space and figure out how do we manage this, this potentially very big transition whenever, whenever it happens to reach us. So I don't know, I, I see a lot of you know, seriousness and a lot of really smart people going into it. But it's true, like actually implementing the things that they learn and figuring out what works through experimentation can be challenging, especially when you have a government that's not super responsive even to challenges that we've known about for decades. Yeah, and this relates to something I mentioned earlier, which is that the U.S. in particular has an unaccountable gerontocracy, and they don't understand these issues for the most part at all. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, that like the folks that have been in power in D.C. have often been there for 20, 25, 30 years. They might never check their own email, even as an adult, you know, like some of our leaders are my father's age. My father's 81. Hmm. Nancy yeah. Pelosi's 81. So, yeah. Yeah, it's something you've talked about a bunch recently is potentially having, I think, an 18-year term limit uh, for serving in Congress and then an 18-year term limit in the Senate in order to try to get, to get a bit of turnover, a bit of fresh blood. Yeah, that, that would be a game changer, that alone. I think that's the right balance. And and I even have a clever way to adopt it, which is you could grandfather in all current legislators so they're not voting themselves <laughs> So they don't office. oppose it. <laughs> yeah, just so they don't oppose it. Yeah. But it, but eventually they'd age out and you'd wind like up that. with legislators who showed up and then were like, you know what? I'm like, I'm out of here anyway. I might as well do something. Plus yeah. their average age would be much lower than it is now. Yeah, I mean, right, right now the average U.S. Senator is 64, um, member of Congress is maybe 57, 58. But the leadership, the average age is literally, you know, like 75 and up. Yeah. I feel a bit torn on this because I, mean, I think there really is value in you know the experience and the knowledge base that is built up among people who are older. But the thing that's a bit unfortunate is I feel like we don't have the right mix. It's like you want some people who are kind of in their 50s, somewhere in the middle, people who've been around for a very long time, a few people in the 70s, some people in the 20s who are like abreast of what are the new things that, that, that people who are older haven't thought about. And it does feel just feel like the mix isn't the mix isn't right. <laughs> well, the, another weakness of the current system, man, I mean, you have Chuck Grassley and Diane Feinstein who are running for office at the age of 88. You know, it's like yeah. like people are literally just going to expire in office because there's no, no like, process, like, like there's no yeah there's no process or incentive for them to to do otherwise. But when you talk about a mixture, if you had 18 year term limits, there's nothing preventing someone from getting elected into office at the age of yeah. uh, you know 55 and then being there until they're 73. So you'd wind up with a mix of people like you're describing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel I have mixed feelings about term limits. I, I absolutely see the see the case that you're making. I suppose that I feel like the smartest objection that I hear is that in a world with term limits, it empowers lobbyists and empowers kind of external actors because they'll have all of the expertise because they stick around all the time. Whereas the politicians themselves will always be turning over and they'll always feel like freshmen. They, they don't really know what's happening. They don't understand the process. So they'll always be asking lobbyists for advice. I feel like 18 years maybe is a bit in the sweet spot where there'll be enough people who do know. Yeah, that, that's why I, I chose a slightly longer term because of that concern. Concern. Yeah. Um, I, I talked to someone in D.C. the other day where, you know, the concern you have 
is very much with us now, where the level of resources available to lobbyists is much, much higher. Like members of Congress are one thing, and then their staffers are just rotating out all the time now. Hmm. And if they go to the other side of the lobbying firm, they'll get three, four, five times their salary. And by the, so if you work at a, in a congressional office now, you're overworked, you're underpaid, everyone's always mad at you. And so then you're like, okay, what is my next step? Hmm. And then the lobbyists on the other side are like, we pay better, your lifestyle is better, you'll get more respect. And that is DC in a nutshell now. Yeah. So if you are concerned about there being a mismatch of resources, it's already here. <laughs> but but I'm but I'm I'm with you. You know that you need a longer term limit because you can't just have people show up and be clueless and then leave. The the, the, the learning curve. Yeah, but the learning curve. Someone said to me, it's like, oh, you need a learning curve. It's like, what learning curve takes more than 15, 16 years? It's like, what? It's like it really clicks in at year 22? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah, just, just wrapping up on AI, um, I'm really excited that you're interested in kind of all of these different angles in AI. There's the labor market side, but there's also, you know, potentially larger changes in how we make decisions as a society, as well as the like, you know, un- unlikely, but, you know, very severe risk scenarios that it also deserves some attention just on expected value grounds. And I think there's a lot of ideas coming out of this space, a lot of like more concrete suggestions for what to do that hopefully you'll be able to engage with in years to come. Well, you know, it's been great for me to have this conversation because it makes me think that we should make this part of Humanity Forward's lobbying mission. I mean, Mm. it's rare to have a professional lobbying shop that's dedicated to the public good the way that we are. Because, you know, if you think about most of the lobbying groups, (laughs) they don't really resemble that. So we, we should make incorporation of AI into society one of our priorities. Yeah, if you're interested to learn more, I think maybe the best shop out there or the people you might want to connect with in order to get you know the best white papers and the best people to hire for that or the best advice on what to recommend is I think the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, like really, really yeah, really good outfit in, in DC that's taking these ideas seriously. Love it. Yeah, kind of across the board thinking about how to how does society adapt to things that are coming down the pipeline in, in science and tech. I love think tanks. Think tanks are fun. Yeah. Okay, to, to wrap up of the, of the next half an hour or so, we got a huge uh, number of question submissions from the audience, and we've added a couple of random bonus ones ourselves. Shall we dive in and, and do them rapid fire? Sure, let's do it. All right, yeah. Does Andrew have any opinions about effective altruism or long-termism, uh, if he's heard about them at all? I love effective altruism. It's just trying to use reason and evidence and facts to figure out how you can do the most good. It struck me as so obvious. Huge fan. <laughs> it's amazing. Effective yeah. altruism. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, any thoughts on long-termism? Love it too. I mean, you know, we're a very short-term society now. We're just getting jerked back and forth. I'm so glad that someone's trying to think about long-term issues for humanity. Yeah. What's something Andrew has changed his mind about recently? And I guess, yeah, the audience on this show loves people changing their minds and admitting mistakes and seeing where they they were wrong in the past. I have changed my mind recently about the persistence and prevalence of inflation in the U.S. economy, Mm. Um, maybe because there has been clear evidence about the persistence and prevalence of, yeah. <laughs> of inflation. Like I, I, I thought it was primarily supply chain disruptions. And now I'm beginning to, to think that it's going to be with us for quite some time. Yeah. Interesting. I'm hoping that it will cool down next year that maybe this Me is too. a bit of a burst of consumer spending, but I guess it's, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of pressure on the Federal Reserve right now to figure out <laughs> how to handle this situation. Yeah. What's a policy or or idea that Andrew is currently promoting, but is worried might actually uh, be a bad idea? This is kind of small, but like I've been championing permanently adopting daylight savings time and just Mm. sticking with it. And then, you know, there were some folks who messaged me about how parents don't like dropping their kids off at bus stops in full darkness, (laughs) which apparently 
yeah. is a product of like being, being <laughs> I'm, a, so. I'm a night owl so i think that one is good for me i i want like as much light later in the day because i'm usually not getting up until pretty late but uh maybe i mean maybe we could change the school hours and work hours at the same time <laughs> yeah maybe uh, so that was one thing i was like oh that's pretty that's like a very very legitimate concern <laughs> yeah. fair enough yeah any other ones i mean there, there's some other things where i, I look at where i'm like you know, frankly, I, I think it's my job to argue for the vision in some cases and then accept that the implementation might be a mix, you know, yeah. like, but, but one of the things about being a communicator, public figure is, that, you know, it's like you accept that you're going to try and anchor someone mm. <laughs> a, a little bit further along. And then if you want, as, I mean, as an example, like I, I obviously argued for universal basic income which I, I still believe in very, very strongly. But then if someone asked me how I feel about the child tax credit, I love it. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, it, it's not what I was advocating, but you know, it's an enormous Close win. Close enough is good enough. Or just, yeah, progress. Progress is good. Yeah. What aspect of perhaps the, the voting reform that you're advocating, or like, are there any possible downsides or, or risks with that? Perhaps that you could see by looking at other countries that have different voting systems, you know, there's always like pros and cons. Well, I've become convinced that what America really needs is to move towards... Uh, multi-member districts and proportional representation in a multi-party mm. system. And I know that there are some people that look at the forward party and say, hey, this process embedded in the current system is not going to result in uh, like the multi-party dynamism that we'd hope. And I see that argument very clearly. I don't necessarily disagree with it. To me, the question is, how do we move as quickly as we can towards something that resembles proportional multi-party democracy in the United States of America? And I'm convinced that open primaries and ranked choice voting is a realistic thing that we can do that will actually move us in a better direction. Because I do think the Fair Representation Act, which moves us towards multi-member districts and proportional representation, will not pass. Mm. And I'm, I'm not the kind of person who will just be arguing for something that I do not think has any possibility <laughs> of yeah. passing in the near term. So what we need to do is movement build implement open primaries and ranked choice voting in more places, get more Americans up to the fact that the duopoly is failing us, and then maybe we'll get enough energy around something like the Fair Representation Act. Hypothetically, if in 2020, Andrew had had the ability to personally direct any part of the US COVID response that he wanted to intervene in and was authorized to spend unlimited amounts of money on anything he thought was a cost-effective way to tackle the pandemic, what would he have done differently than, than what actually happened? Well, you referenced earlier, Rob, the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, and less than 18% of that went directly to people and families. It went to institutions and pipes. And there was something that really pained me about, you know, saying like, hey, we need to prop up this organization and then trust the organization to convey the salaries or economic benefits through to people. Oftentimes they did not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and whereas if you look at a place like Canada, they just went straight to the people. They said, hey, look, go to this website, you know, we'll, we'll try and make you whole or 75% a whole or whatever it is. The U.S. did this hodgepodge that we used the tax system. Okay, I get it. You know, the pipes were there. It worked for tens of millions of people. It missed massive numbers of people that didn't file taxes who or tend to be among the most vulnerable. Mm. Uh, I, I would have had a much higher proportion go straight to people and then make that interface direct and let some of the institutions, you know, adjust a bit more meaningfully. Like, I, I'm not saying it should be 100% individuals, but the balance was way off in my view. And uh, I think it contributes to the sense of failure, really, mm. here in the U.S. I, I also think, and this is not, you know, a federal issue, but I think the U.S. should have been trying much harder to open its schools earlier, mm. um, that it was not borne out by the public health data 
that the, the schools in some places are closed for a year and a half. It was more of a political decision in certain areas. Yeah. Speaking of just giving people money directly, so there's been this like big discussion about how to encourage people to get to get vaccinated, and people have tried lots of different methods, like a lot of them quite sensible. But something that surprises me is why don't we just pay people? Why why don't we just give people we a five hundred dollar or a thousand dollar bonus in order to get it? Because because then it's like it's kind of it's not that coercive, it's not that aggressive, but people will do it because they want like the one the five hundred dollars for doing their part to end the pandemic. It's totally reasonable to pay people for their for the hassle of it because it's like socially beneficial. And then people will say, ah, oh, but the IRS isn't set up to do this. It would be like very difficult. And I'm like, are we setting it up for next time? Are we setting up the systems to like do this obvious thing next time around? And no, we're not. Yeah, I've been making the same argument for a while, Rob. Just like, just pay the people. Yeah. You know, who cares? It's like pay them 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, like doesn't matter. Yeah. Really, like the amount is a pittance compared to the social good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any frustrations with the response from US agencies like the CDC or, or FDA or maybe, you know, the science groups? Oh, of course. I mean, if you if you read my book, you saw I have a full chapter on what a fiasco the CDC was. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So again, I think the frustration in the U.S. really is born of the fact that we have these unaccountable bureaucracies that if they fail us, nothing happens. It's just, you know, there's like a little bit of a song and dance and everyone's like, yeah, and then just kind of move forward and then wait for the next failure. And everyone's like, yeah, and then the press doesn't focus on that form of accountability. It just focuses on the interpersonal drama of the day or what's on social media. Yeah. So it's one of the things that really shocked me, Rob. It's like I ran for president. I was walking around saying, hey, 4 million manufacturing jobs lost. In my view, a lot of it was due to automation. You can make an argument for globalization, whatever. But like no one cared about facts when I was going around talking about these things. And there was part of me that was like, hey, I just talked about these 4 million manufacturing jobs, which by the way, their disappearance ended up leading to Donald Trump, in my opinion. It's very clear. Mm. It's like, you know, where were those jobs? Michigan, Ohio, Western Pennsylvania, you know, Wisconsin, Iowa. But like no one, just no one cared about the facts of the case. And so I was musing. I was like, hey, I'm talking about 4 million manufacturing jobs. What if I said it was 8 million? What if I said it was 12 million? Like, at what point does anyone be like, oh, shoot, it's 10 million. Like, maybe we should take this seriously. Yeah. It's like, like the, the media organizations don't have any real relationship <laughs> with, with, with what is happening on the ground and people sense it. It's like they're just getting whipsawed by like these tiny media-based incentives. And so like you could have the reality shift very dramatically, which by the way, it has over time in a lot of these places. And then like there's never a trigger for someone to wake up and be like, okay, now we should really take this stuff seriously. Like that, that was the thing that shakes me up so much. It's like yeah. I, I did not realize just how weak our institutions were in terms of trying to respond to changes on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. If people grab your book, I think this is one of the most interesting aspects is yeah, the first third is kind of a memoir of your presidential campaign. And I guess we know the media is messed up and that the things that get attention are not necessarily the most important or the most substantive, but it's very interesting hearing the details of the fight for attention from the perspective of a of a candidate, how difficult it is to get people to engage with serious ideas versus, you know, an interesting meme or something. Yeah. And, and even now, and it's, it's interesting, Rob, the situation I find myself in now is that from my book and the lessons of the last several years, America, certainly a media, thrives on characters. You know, like there have been people doing things similar to what I'm, I'm doing now for the last period of time, but just no one paid attention because that person wasn't famous or whatever. So now, uh, like, I'm a bit of a public figure and I'm trying to figure out how to maximize my impact uh, because I've entered this world of like the cast of American characters. And that's unfortunately something of a prerequisite in American life because this place is a mess. 
So now I have to try and make as much use of it as I can. So the, the ways I'm doing it are, again, Humanity for the lobbying, ARM, the forward party, uh, the foundation, and, and some other things. But I feel this immense responsibility because I feel like, wow, you know, like the encouraging and discouraging things simultaneously. Well, the, the encouraging thing is I've met amazing people and like some of them are doing great, great stuff. And we've referenced some of them on this on this podcast. But then the discouraging thing is like you realize how relatively finite that universe is. You know, it's not like they're, you know, they, they're just like, holy shit, like I met the people and like there isn't like another whole set of people. (laughs) (laughs) There's no grownups out there (laughs) above us to do a better job. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that's why we got to be the grownups. We got to do it ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Another question. If you try to integrate both political and moral considerations, what does Andrew think is the right ballpark level of foreign aid for the U S as a fraction of U S GDP? I think it would be a lot higher than it is now. I think that's objective. I mean, the fact is our investment makes an immense difference in a lot of other parts of the world. We invest less than other comparable developed countries. I think it's about 0.2 or 0.3% at the moment, like versus I think <laughs> typical so, is 0.5. so embarrassingly low. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know I mean? like, if, if you ask people how large they think it is, they think it's 10%, 20%, 30% of the, of the government budget. Yeah, and and then you ask them how much they think it should be low. and they say, oh, small, it should only be 5%. And I'm like, you know, it's less than 1%. <laughs> Yeah. If we stepped it up and, and, you know, came in even at something like 1.5%, it'd be a game changer around the world. Yeah. Advances in science and technology are really central to making people's lives better over time. What does Andrew think is the most important thing to fix about how the US government tries to speed up those advances today? We should be investing much more in basic research, the stuff that right now is not naturally fundable and doesn't have any clear commercial upside. The stuff with commercial upside, we know the companies will pile into. (laughs) So we can invest in some of the foundational research and then make it long-term and sustainable so that people can dedicate their careers to it. That would be the biggest difference maker. And and I have some access to this because my my father worked in Tom Watson's research labs at IBM for uh, a couple of decades and generated 69 US patents. And so, you know, that's like one of the biggest commercial orgs, but the, the government should be trying to return to that in an ideal case, it ends up in the commercial orgs. And that's cool. You know what I mean? It's like the government's job is to try and uh, prepare the track. And then if someone like Elon runs around with the research X years later, then that's the point. That's the goal. Mm. Yeah. So a criticism I've heard of how government science funding works in general and, and in the US is that there's a, been a big tendency or a big trend over time to give like more and more money in these like very large grants to very senior scientists, you know, in, the, in their 50s and 60s on the basis of very large grants that they've written up and applied for in, the, in, in processes that take years. And basically this means, or oh, like a neglected opportunity is finding like that, the, the young gun, the 25 year old who you know is, who's, is great in their area and just saying like, here's a million dollars, go figure out like what you think is most exciting and, and being flexible about it and being fast and like investing in people who are new and have ideas that not everyone will love. And some people on the panel, you know, might think it's silly, but like actually taking, taking more risks. Oh, I would love that. You know, if I were president, I'd be freaking machine gunning like million dollar grants to the up and coming 25 year olds. Um, As you can tell, maybe there's a consistent theme in this convo, but like I'm not a huge fan of this super seniority system that dominates access to resources in the U.S., yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you don't have to hate it. Like, I appreciate there's there's room to give people who are 60 big grants. Oh, to I like, don't want to take it away. You want to destroy I just want it. to compliment it, you know, exactly. like, or upgrade it or update it. You know, I mean, yeah, there's there's some 65 year old scientists that deserves every bit of what they're getting. You know, yeah. we just got to speed it up. 
it feels like this is a more general cultural trend somehow that just all of the systems are so old and like all of the people who have run them and invented them are now or like even politics and, rob think about yeah. this it's like how the heck is it you know because like i'm in my mid-40s and i was definitely the spring chicken um but like it it, it has hit me now that you know, in order to accrue a certain level of political heft and resources and fundraising capacity and the rest of it, like you need to have been around the system generally for uh, decades. for decades. And and, and so uh, we can look forward in 24 if it's a Trump-Biden rematch, which it looks like it very well may be, combined age 158. You know what I mean? Like it'll be like, a, a, like an emblem of the super seniority mm. because that's what it takes in American life now to be – it's not great. Like you want a system that rejuvenates itself – and occasionally takes chances on, you know, some younger figures. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you could implement one policy change to reduce the threat from nuclear weapons and nuclear war, uh, what would that be? Well, the obvious thing is you need, like, more points of decision in the U.S. freaking... I mean, we, we've had, like, some near false alarm responses <laughs> over the last number of years. Like, like you know, so I, I get it's like, I think that we have an anachronistic system where it's supposed to be, like, every second counts, every second counts. It's like, look, let's have a couple of decision points and have a little bit more safeguarding against yeah. someone doing something calamitous in response to, you know, a, a threat or at this point, a technological failure. You know what I mean? So you can get a yeah. message being like, hey, it's happening. It's like, well, shit, like, you know, someone at this point could be sending false messages and, you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to, to change world history based on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sort of Damocles hanging over us all the time that we that we tend to ignore. It's not my area, but like the US and, and Russia negotiated this really very good, you know, arms reduction and arms monitoring treaty in the 90s after the Cold War. But I don't see anyone trying to do that between the US and China. Like they could hopefully maybe agree on limits to how many weapons they're going to have armed at any point in time and like an ability to, to inspect to, to check that kind of thing for, for all of the same reasons that we did it with Russia. Well, I, I like it. You know, and I, I'd say that this is something that we don't we haven't spoken about. But uh, the U.S.-China relationship, we can tell it's worsening. If you, there's one thing to be concerned about in terms of our geopolitics, it is that that relationship gets worse and worse and winds up in a cold war or worse. Uh, you've already seen a splitting of the technological universes and the yeah. AI universes. So I would love to have that kind of relationship at a minimum with China where it's like, look, we can continue to disagree, but let's not blow each other up and blow up the rest of the world and like, yeah. you know, figure out some rules. I'm not sure that there, there's a trust though right now. Yeah. And and, and right now, but there might both be one parties day. are kind of unified in wanting, you know, to, to appear to be as tough on China as possible. Yeah. Do you have any ideas for what the US should do vis-a-vis -vis China uh, other than, well, different than what it's already doing? It would be to accept that China's here to stay. It's a, you know, it's going to be rising and trying to get away from like a zero sum mentality, which the U.S. has frankly had throughout the last number of decades, where it's like if someone else is rising, then we have to try and kneecap them in any way we can and avoid this this binary dynamic that is right now gaining strength, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a tricky one because China does things that, you know, I and most people find find objectionable, uh, you know, very, very, very objectionable. Yes. Uh, but I suppose like trying to pretend that they don't have the power to do those things. And it just kind of puts you in a fantasy world. And like, maybe there's a need for like a bit more hard realism about the concessions that you have to make to a country that is just so enormously powerful. But you know, yeah, we're definitely outside my area. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, I, I generally agree. I mean, it's, it's a tough one. And they, they're currently doing things that I find reprehensible too, particularly their treatment of the weaker uh, religious minority. Yeah. But 
you know that again like these are going to be the two great powers and you you don't you don't want them at each other's throats over time yeah yeah my, my rough impression is that china has really trashed its international reputation over the last five years and i don't know that they've gotten that much out of it my hope is that at some point they're going to come to their senses and realize that just aggravating everyone and like making people kind of hate you is not actually in their national interests well, one of the things that I've heard is that right now Chinese nationalism is on the rise and the enthusiasm for the Chinese people for the, their government is rising as well. I mean, they've seen a lot of rises in their standard of living. So it's tough. It's going to be a tough one. Yeah. But, you know, tough problems. I mean, I think one of the points of this podcast is to say, well, you know, we have some tough problems, but you have, you have to engage. Yeah. Yeah. Past generations also had similar similar issues. Okay, does does Andrew have a view on the merits of so-called human challenge trials for new contagious diseases? Um, I'm not familiar with what you were describing there. Ah, right. So the idea is to speed up vaccine trials by allowing some like young, healthy volunteers who potentially you pay to basically have the vaccine. And then as soon as you've gotten through the window of vaccination, then you expose them to COVID and see, see whether the vaccine works. And the issue is it can take a very long time for these trials to run and during which the pandemic is, is running rampant because you have to wait for people to kind of naturally get exposed to, to the pandemic. And you have to have a much larger sample as well to offset the fact that the vast majority of people won't get sick regardless. I was a relatively early proponent of some of these things. I got beaten up for it. Uh, but it was like, look, if, if someone is acting on their own volition and there's massive public good associated with it, you know, yeah. there, there are risks involved. But, yeah. you know, I, I think people should be able to adopt it. I mean, we asked... We asked doctors to take huge personal risk, you know, older, like a doctor who's 60 who went went in was taking a much bigger risk than a 20 year old who would be participating in one of these human challenge trials. And they're completely volunteering. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was an early proponent of this and then people attacked me and I was like, well, it makes sense to me. Well, well, you, might be, <laughs> well you, might, you might be happy to know that people have really come around. They're now, I think one of them is happening in the UK and it's like not, not really so controversial at all anymore. People have seen sense, I think. Has Andrew thought much about research into forecasting accuracy and how to make it better, such as Professor Philip Tetlock's work? Well, certainly. I mean, in politics, like people are getting more and more concerned that our polling doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think this should be something we invest heavily in. It's one thing I I would love for us to be able to demonstrate to people as one of the benefits of AI, if you can actually get this right. I'm not familiar with this particular scholar thinker's work, but in principle, like, I'm 100% on board, 1,000% on board. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tedlock, he spent a, a couple of decades collecting concrete specific forecasts about international relations and politics and the economy from experts, and then seeing who has good judgment, who can actually predict the future and, and who can't. It, it's super interesting work. He's, he's got this book called Super Forecasters, where he summarizes it. Again, there's so, that does sound fascinating. But uh, again, there's so little accountability. Like people get things wrong all the time. And then it's like, well, you know, it's still there. And we still listen yeah. to the same freaking people no, sometimes. He actually found the more likely you are to appear on TV, the less accurate your forecasts are. The more famous you are, the less accurate. Yeah, that, that checks out. From um, Take it from a TV personality. That checks out. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll tell you, like when, when I want to see what the predictions are, are, I go to one of the trading markets. Hmm. And it's like, oh, what does the market think? You know, for for example, Republicans retaking the House or whatnot, which I, I think is highly, highly likely, and the market agrees <laughs> yeah. as one example. Yeah. What's a policy area that Americans don't talk about as much as it deserves, uh, other than the ones that we've already uh, talked about? Wow. I think we need to try and upgrade our public schools in the biggest way possible. I don't know if people talk about it, but it's painful how behind the curve our schooling system is. And we're not preparing the next generation for the economy of today, much less the economy of tomorrow. I, there probably are a lot of people talking about it, so it might not be the best example, but there's not a whole lot of movement 
because a lot of these schools uh, don't really need to change. Uh, the, mm-hmm. So uh, I'd, I'd love to see more experiments in this space. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, you, yeah, you've been super generous with your time. I know you're incredibly busy with the book and the, the party and the lobbying and press and all that. So yeah, thanks so much for making so much time to, to chat with us. I guess final question we had was, if you just had to completely change careers and you somehow became totally indifferent to making the world a better place, what would be the most self-indulgent or most just personally enjoyable career for you to pursue instead of what you're doing? When I was young, I had this strange desire to be like a personal trainer, fitness nut, where I would just, you know, get to be physically active all the time and then try and help other people, their fitness goals, which is, you know, that makes it sound like I'm really fit right now, which I I would say is not the case. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I try, you know, so like, it's not like I'm, you know, living this right now, but this was like something that occurred to me when I was younger, when I, I was into fitness and I thought like, wow, I need to just like make this my life. Um, mm. I never I, I came close to doing that because of a variety of reasons. But yeah, that, that's something that there was a point when it would have been self-indulgent. Yeah, you know, I'll throw something in there too. I, I think I, I might write about things that no one gave a shit about. Mm. <laughs> like like that, that would be maybe another. So I'd be a really fit <laughs> trainer by day and then uh, writing. Talk about what you feel like. Uh, yeah, writing, writing total, yeah, like uh, self-indulgent scribblings by night. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for being a like really authentic person in public life and, you know, working hard to put really big ideas onto the agenda. It's a pleasure to read your book and a pleasure to listen to your podcast. Well, thank you, Rob. Again, let's actually build this future we want. I sense that this community is way ahead of the curve and we need to try and catch other people up. But there are things we can do. And if we don't do them, I have a feeling that the future is not going to look anything like what we want it to. So let's fight for it. Let's actually invest our time, energy, resources, ingenuity, and get people on board with a more positive view of the future by showing them what can be done. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. As always, there'll be lots of links on the website for listeners to learn out more about how they can potentially get involved in, uh, in lots of the different potential problems and solutions that we've talked about here. My guest today has been Andrew Yang. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Andrew. Thank you, Rob. Effective altruism. Let's do it. <laughs> Appreciate you all. All right, if you're new to 80,000 Hours or Effective Altruism, here's a couple of our other services that you might well find really useful. First off, the 80,000 Hours team has been releasing a lot of new and updated pages on the website lately, including a report on China-related AI safety and governance paths, as well as the post Be More Ambitious, a rational case for dreaming big if you want to do good. You can find our new written work at 80,000hours.org latest or sign up to get email updates about our latest research every few weeks at 80,000hours.org newsletter. Second, our job board currently has 676 available vacancies and study opportunities across all the various problem areas that we discuss on this show, and including some for undergraduates, as well as some for people who are already well into their careers. There's more remote roles than in the past, I think 147 as I'm recording this, which might make it easier to find relevant options if you're not living in a major US or UK city already. You can check out those roles and filter them down to options that might be right for you at 80,000hours.org jobs. Finally, there's our advising team who are speaking with more people than ever about how they can have more impact with their work. The service is free, of course, and you can find out what our advisors can and can't do for you and apply to speak with us at 80,000hours.org slash speak. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are always available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.